You're listening to Mitnick's Monthly Brushstrokes, a podcast on the art of outsmarting, the fun part that sets you apart. I'm Keith Mitnick, author of Don't Eat the Bruises, How to Foil Their Plans to Spoil Your Case. For more information, please visit keithmitnick.com. In this session, I want to share with you three new strategies that came out of another trial that's happened since we last recorded. And this one I tried with a partner of mine, Herb Hoffman, and we were in a very ultra-conservative venue. And because of the circumstances and the nature of our panel, we had to develop three strategies, all three of which came together to get us a tremendous, full, just result. And I want to share them with you. I realized before trial, one of my concerns was the jurors were going to think, what's the big deal about having hardware in an extremity? Because a lot of those jurors are going to have had hip replacements, knee replacements, those type of surgeries. And they would see them as a godsend that alleviated a great deal of pain. So with that group standing up and saying, my gosh, she's got hardware, I was concerned was going to fall on deaf ears and sound like I was making a mountain out of a molehill. So I took a lesson out of our cigarette company cases where we sue cigarette companies. One of the things we have to do in those cases is what we call orient because our clients started smoking back in the 40s and 50s and it was a different time and place where the large majority of men smoked in America Uh, Most of the doctors were smoking, that kind of thing. So in order for the jury to understand, they have to understand it was a completely different time and place. So we orient. We use pictures, descriptions, and three stations on TV that went off at 10 o'clock, no internet, no cell phone, those kind of things to remind people it was a different time and place. So I had that in my back of my mind, and I realized, you know what? That has a place in a case where you have a young client but have jurors who are let's say mature, and I'm 60, so I can say that. And so here's how it worked. I explained to the jury, we can't do justice if we don't recognize and orient ourselves to the place and time our client is in their life who's 18 years old. I have a friend who's my age, folks, who had a miserable hip, hobbling around, hurt all the time, and finally had a hip replacement. And I saw him and said, hey, how's your hip after he'd had the surgery? And he'd recovered by then. And he said, thank goodness for this hip. The pain's gone. And I said, does it feel like it used to? He goes, no, it doesn't hurt anymore. I said, no, but I mean like your hip did before. He goes, no, you know, it's got a little odd feeling to it. I can tell it's not my natural hip, but I could care less the pain's gone. However, folks, that's completely different with an 18-year-old. An 18-year-old is not saying, please give me metal to get rid of this pain that is immobilizing me. That's decades and decades away, if at all. And if we don't remember that, we don't do justice here. So it's so easy and natural for us to view things through our own eyes. But the law is, you have to look at it through our client's circumstances, which are at a totally different end of the spectrum. Now let's talk about the limp. She has a limp. You saw her walk up to the stand. She's not hobbling around. But there is a very subtle limp that was recognized by the doctors involved. Now, again, we have to adjust our perspective and not look at it through the lens of later in life. 
Heck, I get out of bed in the morning, and you wouldn't want to see me walking into the bathroom to brush my teeth. I got to get warmed up before I can walk and not be hobbled. But I'm 60. She's not supposed to have a little limp. And it's only going to get worse in time. This is as good as it's going to get. Her life now, she has to sit at the end of a day and put her foot up because of swelling. Now, at my age, putting something up because it's swelling is just part of life. And I'm just happy to sit down and get it up. I'm not complaining. But let's go back when I was her age. Heck, I played football. The whole purpose of football is to get down on the ground. The other guy's putting you down, or your job is to put them on the ground. And you hit the ground hard, and you hop right back up, and you do it again over and over and over. Now, if I drop something and it rolls under the couch, I stand there for five minutes trying to come up with a strategy of how am I going to get down there and get it and get back up, at which time the jurors all chuckle. And I said, if you told me I had to do that strategy when I was her age, it'd have been a devastating blow. And then tell me I'm going to do that for the rest of my life, and it's just going to get worse. So I ask you, for the sake of justice... Let's remember where she is in her life journey and not superimpose where the rest of us may be. So that was lesson one. And I we got that those jurors nodded. It was an awakening moment. You could see it. They oriented and they did the right thing. It was a very significant seven-figure verdict in a very conservative area with elderly jurors and a very young client. But a little explaining, they understood and did the right thing, which leads to the next thing. The second strategy out of it was this. We had an obvious juror who was biased. We've all had it happen. No matter how hard we work in jury selection, people slip through. And boy, did we have one. Everything I did, he was arms crossed, looking down. He was all but going boo when I talked. The defense would get up and he was all but clapping. And I mean, we were sick about it. And he wasn't alternate. He was a juror. So what do you do about it? Well, first, you got to buck up and get past the demeaning feeling when you're pleading your heart out and you see this guy looking like, give me a break. But the rest of them weren't. And I had a strong sense we were in good shape with everyone but that person. So I designed a strategy that I would highly recommend when you have that one or two biased jurors, but you feel you've got the majority that are unbiased and ready to do justice, full justice. And so this was in closing argument. I said, American justice is the best in the world. And a big reason that's so is we don't rely on one person to decide. It's not a jury of one. We bring a group of people in from the community to decide. And we've all heard the saying, there's strength in number. Well, that is never truer than on a jury like you, because the group ensures pure justice and that outside biases or prejudices that can sneak back in can be put to rest because we're human beings and biases that people have put aside can creep back in unintentionally. But as a group, we're able to protect against it. And I suggest if anyone hears it unintentionally creeping back in, that others speak up, respectfully remind the person, hey, that's not the law and that wouldn't be right and that wouldn't be fair and we took an oath. And I say respectfully because no one would do it on purpose. It's just human nature. But if we're going to do pure justice, full justice, which is the only true justice, then it's worth standing up for, it's worth fighting for, and it's worth staying late for. And it worked. That juror came back in, head down. He was clearly unhappy. He looked like a wet hen. However, the verdict spoke for the power and the strength of number 
who reined him in. And the last lesson that came out of that, to my surprise, the defense in that, because he was seemed, was a classy guy I like, but at the end, maybe out of desperation, he threw in some political comments. And I was confident we had a mostly Republican jury. And from jury research we had, it was so. And he threw in something about, you know, people have different views. And I don't remember on Fox News, there's a saying that he used that was clearly uh, tied to Fox News. And he said, made a comment about, we just need to do what's reasonable People have different views. Some watch Fox, some watch MSNBC, but we need to all come together and make sure we keep our heads and do what's reasonable. It was just an overt political ploy to say, don't forget, you don't want to come back with a big verdict. You will be untrue to your political beliefs. I started to object. I thought he was going to quit, and he kept going at that point. I didn't want to make it worse. So quickly, I designed a strategy for rebuttal that, again, we know from the results worked, and it was good enough. I want to pass it on because I believe you may not reach extreme situations, but you certainly will face situations where you may feel people's political leanings could impact your verdict. And it was a very simple one. I simply said to the jury, there is so much division that runs deep in our country, so much disagreement in our country, but the courtroom is a wonderful place for unity. It's where we get to work together and do something important, something we can be proud of, something that is pure and untainted by all of the divisions outside of the courtroom. You know, we have a word for it. It's called all American justice. And please, folks, after this hard week together, let's bring back a verdict that'll make us all proud because it is all American justice. And that's how I ended. It felt good. The result told me it was good. So lessons out of that case that I wanted to pass on and strategies are if you're in a conservative venue, remember if you've got a younger client and older jurors, orient them and they'll do the right thing. And remember, if you have that one biased juror who's showing his or her stripes after indicating no bias in jury selection, remember the strength in number argument. And finally, if you're concerned their politics could taint your verdict, and talk about all American justice. Thank you. For more information, please visit keithmitnick.com.